You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. It's so good to be with you. We are kicking off a brand new teaching series called Multiply. And this is a teaching series I've kind of sat on for a while. Uh, it's one that I've even had scheduled in uh, our, our scheduling system, like, hey, we're going to preach through this multiply series. The timing's never been quite right for it, and yet I don't think there's a better time than now to preach through this four-week preaching series. It's a, we're saying it's our Christmas series. This series really has nothing to do with Christmas, but look at it. It's a Christmas tree um, up there. And uh, right now, maybe you've noticed, our church has been growing. I want to show you just a a chart to show how our church has been growing recently. Uh, Two years ago, this is our average adult attendance for the month of November, okay? So that's what this number reflects. Uh, It's not kids or youth or anything like that. Uh, Back in 2020, we just kind of could throw away whatever numbers those were. Because nobody knew who was going to church still or whatever that looked like. But November 2021... Uh, our average adult attendance was 273. Then last year, we saw a 67% increase uh, in 2022 to a November attendance of 457. And then this obviously doesn't count today, uh, but our average November adult attendance this month has been 813, which is a 77% increase. So if that trend continues, some are like, do we celebrate that? Do we not celebrate that? <laughs> well, wait and see what the sermon's about today. Okay. If this trend were to continue, we would have over 1,400 adults by next year, and we would need at least five services in order to fit that many people. So this naturally brings up tons of questions. Many questions I've been getting recently. All right, we, are you noticing the growth? How do, like, are we going to keep this up? What's going to limit? How are things changing? How do we not just grow bigger, but how do we grow deeper in our discipleship? Is it even possible as we continue to grow and see more people? Why are we handing out hundreds of Christmas Eve invites? Do we even have enough room for that many people? <laughs> And so really, this, this series, I, I think God has actually arranged it at the very perfect time. Uh, I know maybe for you, you're thinking, how do I get through the holidays? You're thinking through Christmas. And I'm thinking through the next season for our church. I believe God has some powerful things in store for our church in the new year. Do you feel it? Did anyone else sense that? I believe God has powerful things in store for our church. And so this series called Multiply is going to cast the vision for where I believe God is going to take us in this new season that he is bringing us into. A few things before we jump in. Uh, Typically, we will preach either uh, a series through a main teaching text. Even our topical preaching series are often like, here's the main teaching text. You can open to it. You can stay in that the whole time. Today is what I'm calling a true topical sermon. What that means is I'm going to be jumping around to tons of different scripture references. They're all going to be on the screen, and we'll finally get to the, the main text at the very end of the sermon. So you can open to Matthew 22 now if you want, but I would encourage you actually 
to be taking notes and jotting down some of these scripture references. Here's how you can keep track of where I'm going today, so it doesn't seem like I'm just up here saying a bunch of random stuff. Three things to help guide us today. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a theological foundation for kingdom multiplications. Okay? So we're going to build a little bit of a theological framework today for this idea, the concept of multiplication. We're going to explore that. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at three temptations that come with church growth. So a lot of churches are asking the question, how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? But, I, I, but then there's this point where it's like, well, what happens when you actually do grow? And is there a way to grow the wrong way? The temptations that come from church growth. And then the third thing is we're finally going to get at the very end of the sermon to Matthew 22, and we're going to talk about how we can focus on the right things. You ready for it? Yeah. All right. Genesis chapter 1, starting in the very, very beginning, we see we're going to jump into a theological foundation for kingdom multiplication. Genesis 1, 28. God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created all the animals, and then he creates people. It says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and, everyone say it, multiply. multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. It's the very first thing that people are commanded to do is to multiply. Did you know that? It's the very first command that human beings are given. Now at this point, there's how many humans? There's two. There's two humans. And they're commanded to go and make more humans. This cultural mandate is to not just fill the earth with people, but to create society, to create culture, to go into God's creation, which at this point, you have the Garden of Eden, which is this lush paradise, and really the rest of the earth is for people to go and take God's goodness, his glory, and spread it throughout the earth. So this isn't just a command, go make babies. This is a command because the first two people we know are filled with God's what? They're, they're made in God's image, which means they're meant to take the blessing and the image of God with them and put it everywhere around the earth. So it's not just there needs to be people everywhere. There needs to be people who are made in the image of God, who are taking God's blessing and goodness and spreading his glory. Do you see the difference there? This isn't just we need, we need, we need population. It's we need God's glory to spread. Now this begs the question, why doesn't God just do that himself? God makes Adam out of the dust of the earth. He makes Eve out of Adam's rib. You got more dust. If you got more dust, you can make more people. Why doesn't God just... Make, why doesn't God fill the earth himself? And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to answer the question of why. I can't tell you, you know, the motive that God has, other than I can say it's a simple question of multiplication versus addition. I want to show you a chart, okay? This is the difference. This is a math, math I'm kind of a math guy. Some of you might not know that. Uh, the difference between some of you is like bad flashbacks <laughs> from, from algebra, and you're like, no, not another math equation. So there's the x-axis and the y-axis, and addition is a linear path of growth. So if God were to say, okay, I've made Adam, I've made Eve, you guys stay here, and I'm going to go get to work, and I'm going to make another person, and another person, and another person, and another person, addition growth is when growth is capped by one source. Does that make sense? So if God basically said, now God is totally capable of filling the earth himself with people, right? Because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. 
But for whatever reason, God in his wisdom decides, I don't just want to see addition growth over the earth. I want to see multiplication growth. And in multiplication growth, the growth is not linear. It's exponential. Do you see that? So he gives people the ability to make more people. And that's one of the most beautiful things that God gives. It's one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God. Now, when we talk about this concept of addition versus multiplication, as we apply it to, let's say, a church, what we've been seeing in our... You've got to ask the question, what have we been seeing in our church? And the answer is addition. Addition is when the growth for a church is capped by the one church. And so that's art, and it's a good thing, right? Any kind of growth for God's kingdom is a good thing, right? Amen? We want to see more and more people come to know who Jesus is and experience the good news of the gospel. But what one church is capable of is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's a linear track of growth. And this leads us to all the other questions. Well, how many more services do we have to run? How many more chairs do we have to buy? I mean, we're not going to expand the, the you know, so there's limits. There's, there's cap limits that come from addition growth. But what about exponential Growth. See, in addition, you can get a megachurch, but with exponential growth, with multiplication growth, you can start a movement. You see the difference? You want to see a mega, or do you want to see a movement? And for us as a church, we've already decided the vision for a Hill City Church is we want to see a move of God, which means it's not about us right here, it's about sending every believer with the capacity to multiply and to make more disciples, sending more churches, branching life groups. You see where we're going with this? We see this multiplication effect throughout the rest of Genesis. We're going to do a brief overview of it. You see the similar command repeated. The earth is full of people, but the problem is those people are corrupt and there's a flood. And so God starts over with Noah and his family in Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah. You see the same format. God blesses first. And he said to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth. This is a repeated command. Anytime you hear God speak, it's important. Anytime you hear God say the same thing, it's, oh, it's more important. Does that make sense? What's repeated is significant. So the story continues with Noah and this covenant that God makes with Noah. And it, it continues in Genesis chapter uh, 12, the man named Abram. I'm going to call him Abraham because God changes his name, and so he's more popularly known as Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham that he's going to bless him in Genesis 12. You can go read this. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. And then he's going to use that family, he's going to use that people to bless all the nations of earth. And in Genesis 17, this is what God says to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, at the end of Abraham's life, he has eight sons, which is, I don't know if you've ever tried to count the stars in the sky, but it's a little bit less than the stars in the sky, right? <laughs> Eight, eight, having eight, eight children might seem like a lot by today's like modern standards, but in that day, it's like it, it's not a ton. But this is the power of multiplication versus addition. You see that bell curve? It actually starts 
may be slow, seemingly incremental, but those sons have children, those children have children, those children have children. By the end of the book of Genesis, you have the people of Israel are settling in the land of Egypt. In Genesis 47, verse 27, it says this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful. Do you see what's happening here? They were fruitful and what? Multiplied greatly. It's almost like there's this dominant theme from the very first command that God gave humans that is being traced throughout the rest of the story. Do you see that? And so by the end of Genesis, you have the nation of Israel spends 430 years in Egypt. And if you play out that multiplication principle far enough, after 430 years, you've got hundreds of thousands of Israelites by the time of the events of the book of Exodus. Now, that's Old Covenant, Old Testament theology. It has to do with filling the earth and taking God's presence. But what about us? The earth seems pretty full, doesn't it? In fact, some might argue, isn't overpopulation a concern? And, you know, how are we going to have housing for enough people and the market and all of that sort of stuff? But we actually see something very similar repeated in the New Covenant. In Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission, you might be familiar with it. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, even though Jesus doesn't use the terminology, he doesn't use the word multiply here, he's essentially giving a different kind of cultural mandate. See, the cultural mandate might actually be described as the very first great commission, but here we have something different that we're multiplying. We're not just multiplying people, we're multiplying disciples. Does that make sense? And so while the earth is full of people, it is not yet full of disciples who are seeing God's kingdom come and his will be done in their lives and around them. And if we want to see God's glory come on earth as it is in heaven, then we need more people living out God's rule and his reign in their lives. And we see this, this, this take place as you trace this throughout church history in the early church the book of Acts specifically, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you have a, a, uh, a repeat of the Great Commission. This is Luke's version in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So you see this kind of ripple effect. If the gospel is like a meteor which strikes the earth, what happens is you have these shock waves that Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to see that the Holy Spirit come in power in Jerusalem, and the church is going to start right there in Jerusalem. And then it's not just going to stay there, because it's not just about Jerusalem. It's not just about this people. It's actually supposed to go out to Judea and Samaria, and then even out even further to where? To the very ends of the earth, even places like Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and this is why the church is here. This is why we are here. Because the, the actual mission has to do with a moving out of the gospel, not a staying put and enjoying the benefits of being a Christian. You see the difference? It's inherent. It's ingrained in the command of Christ Jesus himself. Don't stay. Go. You see that? 
And that's why we are here in Boise, Idaho, 2,000 years later, because there's this ripple effect, this geographical going out. And this is what you see if you read through the book of Acts. There's a very similar thread of multiplication that ties to the events of the early church. Starts in Jerusalem. We know that there were 12 apostles, and there were 120 believers there on, the, on day one. And then the Holy Spirit falls, and there's a rushing of a wind, and 3,000 people are baptized, and it continues to grow day by day. And this is a summary statement of the Jerusalem church in Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what happened to the church in Jerusalem? It multiplied. There's exponential growth. This isn't just this, this linear, you know, as long as Peter's preaching, the church grew. But when John preached, eh, not so much. Like, it's not dependent on one person. It's exponentially growing in pockets and in houses and, and on street corners. And God actually uses, in Acts chapter 8, you can read this, persecution for the church to spread them from Jerusalem into those other unreached areas. So the persecution hits the church in Acts chapter 8, and then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, here's a summary statement of the church in Judea and uh, Samaria. It says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what was the result? It multiplied. This is God's will. Like we have, when we read this, we have to see that there's a command that we would multiply disciples, but then you see it actually taking place. And then the, the rest of the book of Acts really centers on the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And essentially, if you have the Jerusalem church and, and the Judean and the Sumerian church, and you essentially look at the Apostle Paul, and that's him taking the gospel to the Ends of the earth. Now we know it's not the actual ends of the earth around the entire globe, but in that day and age, he's taking it to these very unreached areas, even into Europe. And uh, this is what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So all of that to say, this is our theological framework. Do you see it? When the church is healthy, God causes it to grow. That's really been the Underlying principle of Hill City Church. We never have sought to be a, a, you know, to try to grow the church first. We've sought to try to be as healthy, as faithful, as godly, as honoring to the gospel as possible. And there have been seasons where our churches struggle when it comes to growth or numbers or, or whatever those things look like. But we are just trusting that this is this is God's will for the church. Now, I say that, and we still have all these other questions. Well, what about faithful churches that are facing challenges and seeing decline. And so we, we have to be really careful not to over-spiritualize growth in numbers alone, because there, we can just admit, there are very faithful, godly leaders and faithful communities of believers who are facing challenges, who may be even facing persecution or facing uh, challenges from the community that they're in or the space that they have or whatever, whatever that looks like. At the same time, are there unfaithful churches that seem to be growing a lot? Certainly, we've seen this time and time again, that there are unfaithful churches who are led by corrupt leaders who preach heresy, that for some reason, they've got thousands of people there, right? And so this is why we have to be really, really careful not to over-spiritualize numeric growth alone as the goal. 
Here's how I would state our goal as the church. To see God's kingdom come through disciples who make more disciples. That's kingdom multiplication. Now, I want to give you three temptations. Because we are, we, we, it would be interesting if I was preaching this sermon when we first started our church and we had like 80 people at our church. But we're in a situation where we've been growing significantly, and I think these three temptations are really, really important for us to wrestle with. Temptation number one is to make a name for ourselves. That's the biggest temptation, the, obviously the, the initial temptation that shows up when you start to grow, either through addition or through multiplication, is the temptation to make a name for yourself. And you see this temptation played out very clearly at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Specifically, verse 4, it says this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. So who's the city for? Ourselves. And a tower with its top in heaven. So there's a little bit of pride and arrogance. We can reach the same level as God. And then let us make a name for ourselves, lest we just be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is a flagrant disobedience to that initial command to go and multiply. They say, let's stay and build a city. Let's stay and build a city. And this temptation involves both pride as well as comfort. Comfort. Because going and traveling and splitting up and spreading out is, let's be honest, difficult. It's difficult. You go out of your comfort zone. You have to go on mission. You have to get to know other people that you don't know yet. People who don't know Jesus yet. And they don't have the same values or worldview as you. And so this idea of like, do we really have to go? That's the initial temptation. Can't we just make it all about ourselves? And so God confuses the language at the Tower of Babel to force them to go out in the same way that God allows persecution to face the church in Acts 8, and the Jerusalem church is able to fulfill its mission. See, making a name for ourselves prevents us from doing the mission of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love our church. Anyone else love our church? You can, you can, say, you can say that. I love our church. We have a cool logo. We've got a great website and social media. I love our people. I love our staff. This is a beautiful building. And you start, you start to think, you can list all the things you love about our church. And just staying and building and making it all about us becomes really tempting, doesn't it? <laughs> really, really tempting. And you can get a little bit of a competitive spirit. Well, what if our church is better than that church down, down the block or this church? Or, you know, the way that we talk or the way that we think. And we have to just understand that it's not about the Hill City bumper sticker being on every vehicle in the Treasure Valley. It's not about the name of Hill City being made great. It's about the name of Jesus Christ being made great. Amen? Amen. Hill City Church will not last forever. But the name of Jesus, the gospel, his kingdom will come in power. I think about Acts chapter 4, verse 2, when uh, Peter and John are facing persecution from the Jewish leaders. It says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among uh, men by which we must be saved. No one is saved. I want to say this really clearly. No one is saved by attending Hill City Church. The only way that you can be saved is by putting your faith in the name of Jesus Christ. 
asking God to forgive your sin and to lead your life on account of what Jesus has done for you through his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Amen? And I just want to speak to you for just a moment. Today's not an especially like gospel-centered message. For some of you, this is like a theology class right now. But I just want to speak to you for just a second. If you've never received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved today by the name of Jesus Christ. Because the work has already been accomplished for you by what Jesus has done. Would you receive him? Would you put your faith in the name of Jesus? Uh, we're we're going to be able to celebrate a couple of baptisms today, and I'm so excited. Every single person, okay? Don't get lost in all the growth and numbers and the developer or any of that. God cares about every single soul. So much so that he would leave the 99 to go and seek and save the one. That's why we do Christmas cards in my cards. Because it's not about boosting the numbers. It's not about pride. It's not about the name of Hill City. But we care about our city. We care about your neighbors, your loved ones, your family members who don't know Jesus yet. We want to see them put their faith in Jesus. Because there's no other name by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Amen, church? Okay. Temptation number two. You ready? It's doing it our own way. This is where, this is where we, we can get lost a little bit. We say, well, God wants the church to multiply. What's our marketing strategy? What's our social media tactics? What's our, and I'm not here to slam any of that sort of stuff, but I'm just here to say we can be really quick to try to make growth happen, to fabricate multiplication, as opposed to the more difficult thing to do, waiting upon the Lord. I wanted to plant a church since day one, but we haven't done it yet because God hasn't given us the opportunity to do it yet. Doing it our own way is the second great temptation. You see this happen with Abraham and Sarah, where they've been waiting, you know, they had this Genesis 12 covenant. Aren't we supposed to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky? Abraham, you're getting pretty old. And so they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. So Sarah has an idea. Genesis 16, verse 2. And Sarah told, uh, said to Abraham, or Abram rather, Behold, now that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, who she blamed for this? Classic, blaming God. The Lord prevented me, so I have no other option. He says, go, go into my servant, Hagar, and it may be that I shall obtain a child by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. And this, is, this might seem weird to us, where basically uh, Sarah just says, hey, I have a female servant. She can, she can be the one in which your offspring comes through. That was very common practice in the ancient world. And uh, so she's saying, let's do the culturally relevant way of multiplication. You see that? Let's do the, the, the well-accepted practice uh, of multiplication. And where Abraham gets into danger is he stops listening to the voice of God, he listens to the voice of someone else. This is what it means to do it our own way. When we stop listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we stop listening to the scripture, we listen to marketing tactics, we listen to church growth strategies and statistics. And as a result, it turns out to be a mess. And Hagar does conceive and bear a child named Ishmael, but it creates problems in the, and he's not the child of promise anyway. So what happens? They have to keep waiting anyways. And so if we're not careful, we can, to use this kind of as a metaphor, we can end up birthing an Ishmael. Where we can multiply, or we can grow, but it's not how God wanted us to do it. 
And I just think of one of my favorite passages from the psalm, Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Allow me to just kind of insert our context. Unless the Lord builds the church, those who build it labor in vain. Do you believe that you trust that God's going to cause the growth? Or do we have to make up for the fact that God's making us wait? Or it's taking longer, or facing resistance, or facing challenges? Because the reality is we can build something big, but it might not be the big thing that God wants us to build. Here's a better definition of success for you and your life and for us as a church. This comes from Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It is the best definition of success for a Christian that I have yet to find. Okay, you ready for this? Success is being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. So this includes both the factors of not just what you do, your output, what you create for God, but who are you becoming, what are you doing, how are you doing it, and in what timetable are you doing it? Are you waiting upon the Lord? Does that make sense? That is a much more robust definition of success. Because otherwise, we're going to end up just doing it our own way. And you're ready for the third temptation. Temptation number three is this, reproducing the wrong things. What's the title of today's sermon? The Right Things. Okay? This is the third temptation. I told you we're going to eventually get to our main teaching text, didn't I? Reproducing the wrong things. I think one of the best examples of this is Genesis chapter 6. We see this happen when man began to multiply on the face of the land. So Genesis 6, this is the events leading up to Noah and the ark. Great, there's more people. They obeyed the command partially to multiply. So they multiply, there's more human beings, but read verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so it's not enough to just multiply people or grow churches. We have to ask ourselves, are we multiplying the right things? Because if you multiply evil, guess what you have? More evil that fills the earth. If you multiply emotional immaturity or spiritual or, or spiritual shallowness, guess what, guess what you have? You have more of that. And is that the goal anyway? Or are we meant to multiply the kinds of people who've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and who've already been taught to obey every command of Jesus? Do you see what I mean? We have to multiply the right things. See, there's, there's a little bit of a misnomer kind of statement that people use. Well, healthy things grow. And that is true, and that is true by the way. Partially, healthy things do grow. I've already kind of stated that, that when the church is healthy, God's going to cause us to grow but guess what also grows? Unhealthy things can grow. There are other ways to grow than just being healthy and being faithful and God causing you to grow. Cancer grows. Diseases grow and spread virally. Debt grows exponentially. So it's not just good things. It's not just this metaphor of if it grows, it must be good. We have to, that's a fallacy, okay? And so we have to be really careful not to become like the Pharisees, who they actually did discipleship. The Pharisees of Jesus' day. But look at what Christ says as a, as a um, judgment, pronouncement of judgment on the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel, look at this, 
They travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, or we might say a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I would hate for Christ Jesus to say anything remotely similar to this to us. That yeah, we did the work of conversion, we did the work of discipleship, we, we made more people like us, but guess what the problem is? We were following him in the first place, or immaturity in the first place. And so we have, before we multiply, the rest of this teaching series, I want to, I want to teach us as a church, set a vision for how we're going to multiply, how, what, is, what is this going to look like for today? Before we end, I just want to just ask the simple question, of what are the right standards? Give us a little bit of a standard of measurement. What, what is God calling us to do? All right, main teaching text. Do we get there in time? Okay. Matthew 22, verse 37. One of the uh, teachers of the law comes up to Jesus, asks him about the greatest commandment. This is Christ's response. Very famous passage. Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God. Love your neighbor. And Jesus elevates. These are two already stated commands. There's 613 commandments in the Old Covenant. I haven't personally counted them, but other smart people have counted them. And Jesus elevates these two. He quotes from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy here. He's, he's actually quoting Old Testament commandments, and he elevates them. And he says, all the rest, 611 others, are all dependent on those two, which means two things. It means you can keep all the other commands, but if you neglect these two, you fail. It also means the reverse, which if you keep these great commandments, then the rest of the others should follow. That's how important these great commandments are. So how are you doing, church, with loving God with your heart, your soul, and your mind? How are you doing? Do you love him? Is that your number one ambition in life? Your goal? To just be a person who deeply loves God? It makes me think of the Psalm of David where he says, One thing I ask that I might dwell in the house of God forever. You want to know where that comes from? That comes from a heart and soul and a mind that just longs to be in deep relationship with God. This is one of the right things. We, we don't just want to grow and multiply. We want to see a community of people who is so in love with God. Well, how do we love God anyways? And there are many things that we can do. We can sing. We can give, we can serve, but I think about this line from Jesus in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see a little bit of uh, cyclical reasoning here? What's your commandment? Love God. How do you love God? Keep his commandments. You see that? And I think it's, it's, it's beautiful, though, because we know this as parents. I mean, think about if your children just constantly disobey you. For some of you, it's not a hypothetical. You're just like, just reminded me of this morning. Get the shoes on. But they say, but they say, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Right? Every day, they say it. Love you, Mom. Love you. Like when you go to bed. Love you. Love you, too. But there's like not a single thing that you could do to get them to actually listen to you or obey them. Pretty soon, you'll start to say, if you love me, you will do what I say. 
You'll keep my commandments. It's the same way with our Father in heaven. Do you recognize this? Here's what I would say to you. Love God through obedience. It's one of the best ways that we can love God. In fact, we see this time and time again, that a people who worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God, actually dishonors God. And so we have to start with, I want to love God, I want to show God that I love him by following Jesus with everything. That's how we say it. By seeking to live out the way of Jesus. And just ask yourself the question, is there any way in your life that you're living in rebellion to God right now? That you're disobeying God? Repent! That would be the most loving thing for you to do today, is to turn from that sin, confess it, and start living faithfully to Jesus. Okay? That's how we love God. That's one of the measurements of the right, are we a community of people who are living out the right things? We're living our lives as best as possible in obedience to God. Now, the Pharisees, though, to be fair, they did this, at least in part. They were very legalistic about the 613 commandments. They were very religious, more religious than you, more religious than me. They were good at it. They fasted twice a week. They did all this stuff. They tithed on everything that they owned. They did all this sort of stuff. But their biggest critique from Jesus was you keep all these other things that have to do with honoring God, but it sure seems like you hate people. You're so judgmental and critical of people. And you're actually keeping people from coming into a relationship with God. And that's why Jesus includes not just the great commandment, love God, but he says the second is like it. Think about these as two sides of the same coin. Or they go hand in hand. In 1 John we read, you can't actually do one without the other. Loving God and loving people are so inseparable. And so I think about John 13, verse 35, where Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another. And so this is the second right thing for us as a church. Are we building a kind of community where the fruit of the Spirit is so evident in our midst? That we reconcile with one another, we forgive one another, we bear with one another. We show grace and forgiveness. And there's joy in our midst. Or are we just grumpy? I have to sit next to that person in church again. Ah, there's not enough seats, so I have to scoot even closer to them, right? Like this is... We have to have love for one another. And Jesus says in John 13 that the kind of love he's talking about is not just the warm, fuzzy feelings. He says that you will love each other as I have loved you. How did Christ love us? And the, the, the best way that I can describe it is through the word sacrifice. So if we love God through obedience, here's how we love your neighbor, through sacrifice. God is building a community that knows what sacrificial love is. It's not only the sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. It's the sacrifice of washing the disciples' feet, also in John 13, where he says, go and do likewise. It's the sacrifice of, of spending time with people, of serving, of helping, of encouraging, of feeding, of giving, and, and just living a life of sacrificial love where you pour out and you pour out. And you don't need to take from the person you're pouring out on because you are so filled with love from your Father in heaven. And so how are we doing, church? We're going to talk in the rest of the series how we can multiply and how God can, can cause growth and all this amazing stuff. But we got to do it with the right things. These are the right things. That we would be a church that loves the Lord our God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we love your neighbor as yourself. And when we focus on the right things, then we can trust God and multiply. Amen?
Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.